both Edinburgh's and ADHD are sort of having a moment across the last few years. ADHD was kind of characterised in quite a narrow way for a long time. Being with somebody with a lived experience gives them a different perspective. Can hold um, recovery as an end goal. Someone who is uh, vegan for animal welfare may look a little bit different to someone who's vegan because they heard on the pipeline that it's a good way to lose weight or something like that. But if we're not taking care of the parent as well, that is really going to slow down that process. So I think it should become more common for parents to have their own support during treatment too. The task of treating individuals with eating disorders is huge on its own, but the task of addressing a nation with a steadily growing eating disorder problem is a whole new ballgame. This is Butterfly's Let's Talk podcast. I'm Sam Eichen. At the recent Australia and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders conference on the Gold Coast, Australia's top minds came together to share their breakthroughs with the hope of making things better for everyone. We spoke to so many amazing clinicians and researchers who we think you really need to hear from. This is the second of two episodes that we've put together from the conversations we had after we crashed the ANZ conference. The cost of families of caring for a child with an eating disorder is huge. Parents sacrifice careers and livelihoods to make sure their kids get the treatment that they need. These costs have been relatively unquantifiable until now. Dr. Simon Wilksch is one of the country's leading researchers into eating disorder risk factors, prevention and early intervention in children. And through his latest research, he's managed to quantify a lot of the costs that families face. I was really interested in measuring the experience of parents in trying to help their child through an eating disorder. So I developed a survey for parents with a child under the age of 18. And I measured a range of things. I measured what it was like to first detect the illness, going to the GP for the first time, experiences with getting help from therapists and impact on parents' well-being, and also financial and uh, employment impacts too. Some of the results that you found were quite staggering, but the one that I think we should start with is that very first interaction that most people have when you think, well, you know, parents instinctively know a lot of the time that, that their child has got a problem with eating. But tell us, what, tell us about that, that first interaction with the GP. What, what did you find out about that? Yeah, I found that the first appointment was on average about four and a half months after the parents first noticed the symptoms. And uh, 54% of people reported a positive experience with the GP. 34% had a negative one and the remainder was a neutral experience. So about a third had a, a not helpful experience, which I think really needs to change. And then it gets worse as you move on to specialists. Yeah, that was even more concerning. I found that only 27% of parents had a good experience with the first therapist they saw. And on average, they needed to see uh, over three therapists before they found one who could help their child. So over that time, their child presumably is getting more and more unwell. Their risk of other mental health problems like self-harm and uh, depression, anxiety, etc., is all going up too. The problem's getting more and more serious. And uh, it must be a time of such heightened anxiety and worry for parents without the right support around them. Absolutely. And we've seen also from your result, you've mentioned just before that there were some parents are going to great lengths in order to be there for their kids, right? 
This was one of the first studies to measure the impact on employment and uh, financial side of things. And so parents on average were having to take a total of 70 working days off to support their child through the illness. And really worryingly, there was about 14% that either lost their job or uh, had to resign due to the child's illness. And there was another 14% that had at least six months off. And when you combine that with the fact that the median cost of treatment was around ten to 20000 that is a huge uh, toll financially, but also parents being out of the workforce, that's a real source of connection with other people and um, feelings of self-worth. So that's a huge toll on the parents too that hasn't really been looked at much before. And I guess this was done pre-COVID when the cost of living was you know, not wonderful, but better than it was was now. What what does all this mean? One little uh, note I should just put on that is it was it was done pre-COVID, but it was also done before they brought in the better um, Medicare options for eating disorder treatment. So at the time, there was a maximum of ten sessions with a, a mental health professional um, each year, whereas late twenty nineteen, the eating disorder treatment plans came in and. So, you know, that's up to 40 sessions with a mental health professional and 20 with a dietitian. So I would like to think that financially, at least, the out-of-pocket expense might have come come down somewhat from that study. However, these children were also unwell for an average of four years. And so if you think about the cost of treatment, uh, not just in one year, but over those years, um, it, re- it really would be still quite significant. So as you know, the professional, this is what you do, what do we, what needs to happen? Well, there's a lot that needs to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The first thing is parents need support from the moment they're first concerned about their child. So our national eating disorder support organizations need to have really good resources there for parents to be able to access straight away when they're first concerned about their child. They need to be able to take their child to a GP as soon as possible. I hope that ANZ and NEDC brings in a credentialing system for GPs as well. We have them for clinicians now, but we need it for GPs. So parents can be more confident when they're first seeing the GP. And then, of course, we need people to have a good experience when they first see a therapist. And ideally, to only need to see one therapist and really launch into the treatment properly and not have any false starts uh, that drags out this illness and makes the parents more and more distressed in that time. Not forgetting that the main treatment or the the best treatment at this stage for adolescent anorexia is family-based therapy. And so on top of all these other tolls, we're asking parents to then be responsible for feeding their child every meal and snack for a long period of time uh, and all the distress that goes along with that too. Carers, we know, do a phenomenal job and you know they suffer a lot with the child, but the child's recovery is dependent on the parent, right? So yeah. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. We really need to do more to look after those carers and parents or guardians or whatever the term is that we, we're using. I view it as not just trying to take better care of um, carers for their own well-being, but it's also a, a question of helping the young person as efficiently as we can. And the better off the parent is traveling, I think the faster the young person will likely recover too. And that will hopefully free up therapists to start helping other families and really do a better job at meeting the vast need for support out there. Yeah, right. So there's an incentive there as well. It costs less, less of a a toll on the health system if you look after these 
parents. Absolutely. One other thing I should just mention is that I did find that parents who had their own sessions during their child's treatment had significantly lower depression and anxiety. And I think sometimes this gets lost that, um, of course, our main attention is on helping the young person to recover and get better. But if we're not taking care of the parent as well, that is really going to slow down that process. So I think it should become more common for parents to have their own support during treatment too. Numerous studies have shown that vegetarianism, including veganism, can be associated with eating disorders. At the same time, there's been a huge surge in people following vegan diets in the past decade, particularly in the Western world. But it can limit a person's options if they're looking for treatment for an eating disorder. Fortunately, a new eating disorder screening tool has been developed by Monash University researcher Courtney McLean, which is helping vegans and vegetarians get better outcomes in eating disorder treatment. I guess, broadly speaking, the literature has long established that people who do follow a vegetarian or vegan diet, therefore do have kind of increased eating pathology. And this has been long established from the literature in the 80s that kind of looked at case reviews of people and it found that vegetarians and vegans were kind of, uh, the prevalence was quite high in hospitalization and and, uh, within clinics as well. So that's kind of really what established that literature. And that has kind of long carried on until the literature to date that suggests that uh, vegetarians and vegans do engage in more disordered eating behaviours. And this is the subject of uh, your, your research at the moment? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So my research is more, I guess, we have all this cross-sectional literature to date that suggests that vegetarians and vegans do have increased disordered eating. Um, but I really wanted to look at how we're measure, measuring, I guess, the phenomenon. Um, so in my PhD study and what I'm presenting on this weekend is the development of a new novel eating disorder screening tool for vegetarians and vegans uh, because there was some preliminary evidence that suggests that our current measures may be over-pathologizing vegetarians and vegans. And that kind of comes back to... I guess, dietary restraint. So we know dietary or cognitive restraint and restraint is a big portion of eating disorder tools is what they capture. But on the same side, vegetarians and vegans do kind of engage in dietary restraint in a different form. Uh, Every day they're restricting food. They're saying, no, I won't have this. I'll eat that. Or that's not acceptable within the realms of my diet. Um, So trying to really pull those two apart because those types of restraints come from different places and our current tools may be kind of mashing them together essentially or picking up on picking up on those even though they're different mindsets. Is there a way for people, I mean, is there a safe way for people to carry out these diets or to, to, to observe these diets um, that would not make them so susceptible? Yeah, I think it's tough to say. I really think it depends where your mindset's at when you are vegetarian and vegan. I mean, people have been vegetarian and vegan for very long times and they've just seen that long-term personally and they they love the way that they feel on the diet and they love being vegetarian or vegan. But I really think it ties back to the mindset while, while engaging in that diet, whether that's disordered eating or not. And I guess sometimes that can be disguised 
for some people if they maybe don't have the right intentions of going into a vegetarian or vegan diet. So yeah, it, it's it's really complex. It is. Really it, does, it sounds like it's really complex. And so in your um, PhD, what, what kind of findings or recommendations are you putting forward? Going into my PhD, I very soon came to realize that there's really not a lot of literature looking at eating disorders and vegetarians and vegans. The limited stuff out there was just cross-sectional on university students or female university students. Um, and the field is just truly in its infancy. So in terms of tying into wanting to measure the phenomenon, I looked at our current measures and maybe I attempted to assess the psychometric properties of our current measures to see if they're doing an okay job at picking up pathology in vegetarians and vegans. We found that they don't do the best job. Their theoretical assumptions that the tools are made of didn't apply to vegetarians and vegans and some of our, um, the validity and reliability of these tools weren't the best. So using that information, I then took that to develop my own tool. And, so, and uh, your own tool, tell us about that. Yeah, so it's, uh, I guess, the big pinnacle of my PhD. It's been a, a lot of fun. Um, so I, through, I guess, four phases, developed and preliminarily validated this tool, which is called the VEDS. And from this tool, I have, I guess, in the early stages of development of this tool, when I did interviews with clinicians and people who have lived experience, I found that there were kind of a number of things that were really, really important to a vegetarian and vegan eating disorder patient's background, but didn't necessarily indicate pathology of an eating disorder. So for example, their reasons for being vegetarian or vegan, someone who is a vegan for animal welfare may look a little bit different to someone who's vegan because they heard on the pipeline that it's a good way to lose weight or something like that. So looking at motivations uh, is really, really important. Looking at how, um, I guess, the degree that their dietary adherence is tied with their identity, that came up as a really emerging theme that's important to kind of look at, um, particularly if... Uh, in terms of like recovery and treatment, if someone's saying that their vegan diet is highly tied to their identity and they're going through eating disorder treatment, that might be a big boundary for that patient to receive treatment and kind of untie that restrictiveness with their diet. So in terms of the way that my screen is, sorry, in terms of the way That's that good. my screen is made up, I have a few of these, which I'm calling kind of like dietary characteristic items. So I have six of these. They are really, really great uh, kind of to get, I guess, get you talking with your client. So we know that vegans and vegetarians restrict food, which is generally assumed to be a significant risk factor for problematic eating. But because many come to this diet for reasons beyond like wellness or weight management, we need better instruments for both diagnosis and care. But one problem around care, of course, is that um, many treatment centres won't accept vegans. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately that is... That's kind of what got me into the field, really, is I personally became vegan myself and I joined these vegan Facebook groups. There's quite a few of them, like vegans in Melbourne, vegans in Australia. And I saw a number of people post about trying to seek eating disorder treatment 
having been a long-term vegan. Yeah. Um, and that kind of back their, their dietary adherence kind of backdated the onset of their eating disorder. And they were, they were coming to Facebook to seek advice on what they should do because the, the inpatient facility was requiring that they consumed meat again. And that was a barrier to treatment and they, they simply didn't want to seek treatment because of that. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a big discourse um, on this Facebook. The, the future research avenues for the field are really so vast. As I said earlier, the field for eating disorder and vegetarian veganism is truly in its infancy. So we need kind of substantive evidence-based longitudinal work in this field to kind of track the progression of uh, eating behaviors over time in these groups and really trying to move away from the cross-sectional literature today that is kind of making up a large portion of the literature. Integrating lived experience practitioners into eating disorder treatment and recovery teams is now considered essential in many parts of the sector. Eating Disorders Queensland has developed a framework that was a feature at the ANZET conference, so we pulled EDQ's CEO, Belinda Chellius, aside to take us through their process and how it works. We're fundamentally a feminist organisation okay. um, that was built on the lived experience knowledge. And that is how, back in the day, it was called ISIS, the Eating Disorder Centre. And obviously, for obvious reasons, the name had to be changed and we just became the Eating Issues Centre. But everything that happened in this organisation was influenced by the knowledge of the lived experience. And we've always had a very core lived experience um, whether it's an influence, whether it's on the board, whether it's our community that informed our practice. And doing a lived experience framework was more formalizing the work that our lived experience workers and, and volunteers do. So we're a little bit ahead of your time in this. Definitely. Yeah. So the person who, who started ISIS, the Eating Issues Centre, Dr. Jenny Gilmore, was a, is an academic and a social work practitioner with a very strong feminist practice framework. And part of the feminist practice framework is looking at the community. How does the community inform your practice, putting them at the centre of it? So our work has always been putting lived experience at the centre of it. Yeah. And then the process over the years has been how do we actually professionalize our lived experience workers as we professionalize our clinicians. And when we say peer support, are we talking, is that lived experience yes. based? Yes. So Sorry. we just use a different language. Okay. So peer support, lived experience in the EDQ context, is, it's the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. That answers so many questions. Yes. I appreciate it. Yeah. So different organizations will use different um, labels or words to describe these roles. And yeah. when I get into the co-design, that was part of the conversation we had. Why is it, from your point of view, from the point of view of somebody who runs an organization, why is it so important? It's absolutely essential to the treatment. It's part and especially for EDQ it's not something that's new it's not something we tag on it is part of an integrated 
treatment or support that we offer clients if they choose to take that up. And research shows that and anecdotally what our community tells us, for those who do other treatments, being with somebody with a lift experience gives them a different perspective, gives the lift experience worker can hold the hope, can hold um, recovery as an end goal, but also works within the client's view of recovery because recovery is different for everyone. And we also know it's not linear and it's not just based on some measurement. It's, a, it, it's, it's comprehensive and that's what the feminist approach gives us. It's that whole community. It's not just what this medical model prescribed it to be. And lived experience brings a lot of those nuances to recovery and treatment. Yeah. What, how, how are you doing? How are you building this into everything? It's there already. It's in the fabric of our organization. That's our organization's history. So we're fortunate that we, ground level, it's always been there. Our workshop that we did at the NZ conference spoke to, is it in the fabric of your organization or is it something you've got to, or you want to bring in? Um, and when we looked at formalizing this lived experience workforce that we have or the practice they have, wasn't necessary to tell them this is how, how you're going to do the work. It was tell us how you do the work. This are some of the frameworks out there, like Queensland government's got a framework out, NEDC's got a framework out or some sort of a framework, the same with the national lived experience framework. How does your practice gel with these frameworks? And we put those two together. So I always speak to, I'll come in and say, hey, there's some governance issues we've got to address for our funders. There's some policies that we've got to address and make sure we have in place. But once all of that's been discussed, I left that co-design completely to our lift experience team, workforce, lift clinicians with lift experience that identify with lift experience. And they came together and created this beautiful framework. One of the many risk factors for eating disorders is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD, which as many parents know, is being diagnosed in increasing numbers. Official government figures tell us a little more than one in 20 Australians live with the condition. And while adult diagnoses are definitely increasing, the majority are detected in children. And that's where our final interview comes in. I'm Renee Denham. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I'm based in Brisbane. We had to speak to Dr Denham after she hosted a seminar on assessing ADHD and its complex role in restrictive eating disorders. Both eating disorders and ADHD are sort of having a moment. Across the last few years, probably the pandemic increased our understandings as well. But ADHD was kind of characterised in quite a narrow way for a long time. And I think sometimes that meant that we didn't, the more sort of different and, and complex ways it can present weren't being picked up. But I, I think there was an understanding that ADHD could happen, could be a, an influencing factor in the sort of what is sort of impulsive kind of like um, uh, yeah. orientated eating thing. So I think there's has been evidence that, um, around um, its role. It may have a role in like bulimia nervosa and in there's an understanding um, in binge eating disorder. And there was an under, I think there's um, some understanding that um, 
ASD and ADHD and some of the sensory sensitivity and and um, interceptive problems can have a role in ARFA, the um, restrictive uh, avoidant resist and um, restrictive eating disorder. Because um, so I think though some of those links were there, but I think historically people with restrictive eating disorders like anorexia, while there's increasingly an understanding, it's quite a it's any, um, a restrictive eating disorder can happen to a lot of people if there's circumstances in their life and that can align. But I think historically seen as kind of a very driven, perfectionistic um, group of young people and sort of almost um, as the opposite of like the classic representation of someone with ADHD. Yeah. And so really there's really not a lot of um, information about it there. And um I did, um, I did some literature searches. I found some isolated things, but not like a sort of growing body of, of work where, you know, 10 studies bookended with each other to really paint a picture. Well, and so what do people need to know about this link? Yeah, yeah I think it's, I think that's worth trying to um, draw awareness um, to what I was seeing as a link, because I think it's like relevant and on many levels, actually. So it's relevant for young people with ADHD to know they may have a vulnerability to developing eating disorder. Um, Particularly because the treatment for the gold standard treatment for ADHD in the medication sense is um, stimulants, which are very helpful for ADHD, but um, we do know sort of um, can influence people some of signaling around eating. Then I think it's also really relevant in young people with um, eating disorders, particularly I guess in the cohort that I see, you know, young people that are really struggling with restrictive eating or like life-threatening eating disorders is it a possibility that their executive elements and their executive functioning is making this um, their, their journey harder and, and at least having awareness of that and maybe at some appropriate point providing treatment around that could really help? Because I've heard a, a psychiatrist talking about it. He's, he describes it as a, if you think of your, your, you know, your brain as a, as a car, mm. you've got a Ferrari engine. Mm, like mm. it's super, it's super powerful. Your brain is, there's nothing wrong with your brain. Yeah. But you've got bicycle brakes. Yeah, yeah. Like it'll yeah. just go off in that direction. You can't stop it. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, um, I feel like it's a tension modulation. I feel like then there's also the um, impulsivity um, that can be um, misunderstood a little bit too, because I think impulsivity, I mean, one, I think a lot of these things look quite different depending on your cultural influence. So girls that have different cultural influences historically learn to not be as sort of, sometimes they might not do as much risk um, seeking, but their impulsivity may be not being able to sort of notice that they're the one dominating the conversation or, or forgetting that they weren't going to share that particular insight that the friend had at the earlier break. So I see as many young people, particularly reserved boys and girls, um, but and probably a bit more girls in this category, that because maybe there was a time where they were a bit unfiltered and their social environment told them not to do that, they're actually very um, inhibited with their friends. But it does still come from an underlying tendency for impulsivity. They've just, if you can't think on the spot how to handle a situation, maybe you're better not to talk or to nod and be friend, just polite and, and reward the people around you. Yeah. So I think sometimes that people-pleasing tendency that can happen in ADHD is, well, you know, I'll, I'll just read the cues of my environment. I, I can't decide what I need in this environment and I'll just facilitate it. Yeah. And I think what I've seen, um, the restrictive eating disorders that she was talking about more and um, um, the conversation, given that that hadn't been talked about in ADHD, there are young people that have been lucky enough, I guess, sometimes to be like in 
um, really warm, lovely um, family environments and had a lot of like um, support and scaffolding to learn skills that really support them. They kept pretty busy sometimes and that sort of works for them in younger years. They're often um, quite achievement focused and they have a lot of success. They actually look like the kid that's kind of like managing things really, really well. Um, some And sometimes they can be more, more intensity at home um, but because generally they look like they're, they're pro-social and have good values and that the families are mostly reassured that they're doing okay. And um, But when they hit that a higher executive functioning load in high school and um, the demands change, sometimes they can get more distressed. And then the eating disorder sort of comes can come along in that sort of setting too. And that, that all or nothingness could be an ADHD tendency can mean they kind of get a bit more into it and a bit more at risk of being stuck than in starvation syndrome. Before, and, and then we know that makes it so hard and you need to really have the full eating disorder um, support to then um, come out of it. But I think it's a cohort that looked more like obsessional, maybe OCD characteristics and perfectionistic rather than looking disorganised. But I had the luxury of seeing some of these young people um, across long-term care because our, lucky our service provides really longitudinal support, but some also saw in the private system as well. And it was only actually sometimes over time and that real intimacy of their living experiences are like, wow, look, you're, you're, um, you really are, you really value um, generally things are working out okay because you're working really hard to be a responsible and a, and a um, thoughtful person, but it's really taking a toll. So I saw the disorganization that could actually be lying underneath and some of those young people, when we ultimately thought, well, this could be ADHD and we did some um, assessment around, you know, it was probably one of the most powerful things, the treatments and the, some of the approach around that actually, um, even though they're long recovered from their eating disorder, helped with some of the foundational problems that have made life harder, maybe made them a bit more vulnerable to the eating disorder as well. Yeah. And then I've sort of taken that back to my eating disorder team and the other clinicians are like-minded around it. We've seen these patterns and increasingly sort of it's a really complicated thing to how to when to assess and that because they're so unwell under um, our service but I think towards the end of care we are if we think it's appropriate we're at least um, considering starting treatment because we wonder if it sort of sets them up sort of moving forwards yeah for good things that's psychiatrist Renee Denham talking about the link between eating disorders and ADHD. If you want to find out any more about any of the guests that we've had in this episode, we'll have links to everything that you need to know in the show notes. If you're struggling with an eating disorder or you know somebody that you think might be, or if you're a carer who needs support, the best thing that you can do is to reach out. The Butterfly National Helpline is 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's one 800 Double three four six seven three, or you can go to butterfly.org.au where you can chat online or just look for some resources and find out a little bit more about what it all means. It really is the best first step that you can make. I'd encourage you to also have a look at the website for the Australian and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders, particularly if you're a clinician or a professional working in the sector. Butterfly Let's Talk is produced for Butterfly Foundation in partnership with Icon Media with the support of Waratah Education Foundation. Our executive producer is Camilla Beckett. And as always, please leave us a rating and a comment in the app where you're listening to this podcast. We'd really appreciate that. I'm Sam Iken. Thank you so much for your company.